but you're going to have to move just a little bit, at least for part of what we do. So don't set up your, uh, your tent where you are. <laughs> you're going to need to move a little bit. I'm going to give you a scenario, and you're going to need to figure out which side of the room you want to move to, whether you disagree or agree. And if you don't know, we're going we're to have the fence sitters right here in the middle. All right, and it's okay to be there. Here's the scenario. You're a man, and you and your family have survived World War II in Germany. And in 1948, your wife comes to you and says, I have something I need to confess to you. When we were taken to the camp, when we were taken to the prison, the death camp, and we were separated, a Nazi guard saw how we were ripped out of each other's arms realized that I was, and you were both wearing rings, we were married probably, and he came to me and he said, I can keep you and your husband alive. But the price is that you will sleep with me. And I've held this in my heart ever since these last three, four years. And I can't hold it in anymore. Now, here's your ethical dilemma knowing the will of God. Do you have the right, the biblical, biblically justifiable right, to divorce your wife? Obviously, the prison guard kept his word, and they both made it out. All right, if you believe that you have a biblical right to divorce your wife, you're going to come over on this side of the room, and if not, if you say no, you're going to go to this side of the room, and if you don't know, come right to the middle. So get up, take your... Uh, your donut and coffee and move to the side of the room. Are you going to give them in the middle of the room? Can we go over the picture? <laughs> <laughs> if you say that you're going, you can. I said you can divorce your wife over here, right? Yeah, right. But not not what you would do, but what you have the biblical right to do. So if you say, yes, I do have the biblical right, or no, over here. Can we talk to our attorney? <laughs> and if you don't know, come right to the middle. Okay, now, if it... I thought he already did. All right. Thank you. All right, everybody with me now? It just, it just came to my attention that we have not prayed, and so let's do that as we get started. Lord Jesus, thank you for this time that we can be together. Thank you for this wonderful room that has been created for us. Thanks for all who put their efforts and energies and resources into making such a room. Help us now, Holy Spirit, to comprehend a little bit more about your will and how we can go about determining it. Thank you that you've given us your word to help us to do that. Come just now and mold us as we think these thoughts and entertain these thoughts and emotions in our heart. We ask these things, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen. Okay, now, again, if you need to take a chair and sit. You're going to be here just a little bit. And at any time during this discussion, you can move sides. Or you can move to the middle. Say, wait a minute, that made me think about it. You can, you can make a decision here. And you can move. All right? All right? 1948, and you are a man whose wife has just come to you and said, we were in the Nazi prison camp together. Nazi guard said to me, sleep with me, and I'll make sure that both you and your husband survive. He, he did, she did, and now if you're on this side of the room, it is because you believe you have the biblical right, to, you're biblically justified to divorce your wife, and over here you say, no, it's not. And these are the people that are going to learn from these two sides to decide which side they're going on. 
all right? So someone over here say to us why you think it's biblically justifiable. Why are you on this side? The Old Testament says you have the right to divorce your wife. Why? For, for this? For adultery. So, so you would have a biblical basis of adultery. Someone over here want to talk about that, refute that, or bring your side out? You're in the middle. Is it adultery, though? Is it adultery? That's the question. That's why you're in the middle. Okay, so how many in the middle are there because of that? That you're not sure if it's adultery. Okay, a couple, few of you. Why would you say no? I think it is She says it is not adultery because? Because it's survival of her marriage. Her whole purpose of doing this is So she, it was an ethic of love. Yes. A basic love. Okay, so the ethic of honesty and love trump, trumps everything else. Anybody want to? I'm not saying that I really agree with, I think I would tend to be on that side. All right, so adultery is definitely there, and that's the issue for you guys on this side. The law is the law. I didn't see a lot of exceptions in the scripture that says, well, you were well-meaning in doing it, you did it because there were lives at stake, so you could go down a bit, and that would, in essence, the law would be uh, of no importance uh, because you... Okay, so the law, but a couple of you are speaking about law as well, am I right? Am I putting too much into what you're saying, that you're, you're also adhering to a law, the law of Scripture? I, I, I would plead ignorance on Okay. Well, I think, but I think you're talking about a different law, a law of love, a, love of, a law of forgiveness, and a law of adultery. Am I oversimplifying it, or I don't, and I'm not trying to put words in people's mouths? Go ahead. Maybe, maybe. What are biblical rights? So the people in the middle are trying to still figure this out. Go ahead. Okay. Okay, we're getting to something now, and let's that's, and that's set a couple of our ground rules for what we're doing here. First one is, is that we will attack the other person's argument, but we're not attacking the other person. That's not a good and, one, and there are a couple of things that we are going to learn and a couple of things that we're going to be able to do in the next few weeks together. And one of them, I hope, is learn how to dialogue about some very serious and touchy issues 
in civil ways, in ways that I believe that are biblically mandated, that we need to be able to discuss these kinds of things in a spirit and even in an impassioned spirit because these are impassioned feelings and thoughts that we have, but we need to be able to do it in a civil way, and Christians above all people need to be able to do it in a way that demonstrates what? They will know you are my disciples by what? By your love? Oh, not by your doctrine? (laughs) By your love, which expresses your doctrine, right? So that's, that's, as we begin to get into this, let us realize that we are not arguing against a person. We're arguing against an argument. And I think that can immediately take some of the sting out of what we do. And it's, we're also lear- learning by that some of the rules of logic, that we're not going to have ad hominem arguments. We're not going to argue to the person, but we're going to argue the argument. The second thing that I want to do is also help us understand that much of what we will do and talk about comes at a cost in many of our lives. I would be greatly shocked if there's not someone in this room that has gone through a divorce or has been a child of parents who have divorced or they have experienced divorce in various ways. And so the Holy Spirit always kind of checks me as, as I lead through these kinds of times that these are raw emotional experiences for many of us. And we need to be sensitive to those as we talk about them. We can't avoid talking about them because we need to know what the Bible says. We need to know the will of God. But we can do it in such a way as to be helpful, to be loving, to be sensitive. And so... Please don't be overly offended or overly uh, hurt by this discussion. Now, if you've just come in, if you're in the middle, it's because you're undecided. If you're over here, it's because you have a biblical right. And on this side, we, have, we say we do not have the biblical right. Let me, let me change the scenario just a little bit to see if this helps clarify the issue. And I think this is a little bit to Roger's comment. Now you have the same conversation, except one little change. The wife says, the Nazi guard saw our son and myself being ripped apart from each other's embrace. And he said to me, I will keep you, your husband, and your son alive if you sleep with me. Okay, so everybody just for the, just stand up. You need to stand up. Everybody stand up. Come on, stand up. I am a sports director, so I got to get you moving a little bit. Now, let's see if we're going to move. Do you have the biblical right to, or not? Anybody going to move on that one? Your son has now been. We've, we've got a couple people moving. Do I, can I ask the people who have moved, why did you move? Do you mind sharing? One of the things we learned in law school was that the way you phrase the issue, if you can control the issue, you can control the outcome. And the issue that you raised was not what was the right thing to do, the proper moral, ethical thing. It was what you had a right biblically to do. And I can read in the Bible, I think it's Ephesians, where it says that If your wife finds no favor in your eyes, you write her a bill of divorcement and send her on her way. And I think think it's a great point. I think that's why some over here said, it's not, is this what I would, would do or what I have the right to do? And I think this is a good clarifying question. And so I think that that's that's healthy. We're going to continue to deal with it. Did anybody that moved, would you, you want to share why you moved? Did you just realize you were in the wrong group last time? Or? <laughs> I, it, I was, it was clarified during the course of the discussion. Okay. And that doesn't mean that you are going to. Okay. How many over here would say, I probably wouldn't divorce? All right. Okay. Just so everybody over here doesn't think that we've got, you know, hard hearts over here. Anybody else want to, sh- why did you move?
Okay, very good. A couple hands were up over here. What's the penalty for adultery? What century are we talking about? Old Testament. Old Testament was death. What happened later on in the New Testament when the, when the crowd wanted to stone the woman? Um, Jesus came along and said, you know, you uh, who are without sin, toss the first rock. In fact, uh, when we get in, if we get into this a little bit, in Deuteronomy, it's the, I think it's the 24th chapter, the first four verses, anybody that has this Bible with you, you can look at that. But it's, I believe it is there that, that, Christ, that, that um, Moses writes that for any, it, it would, it's kind of open-ended. Is it straight-out adultery, full-blown sexual adultery, or is it anything along the line? And one of the things we need to understand is in the Old Testament that it couldn't have been full-blown adulterous sexual activity because that would have ended in death. The question about could I divorce, it was much less than adultery. That, that there was a right to divorce for much less than adultery. This was, adul- this was considered yeah. in, in yeah. 1943. Was there another hand over here that I missed? Go ahead. You're in the middle, right? Everybody here is kind of in the middle. You're, you're on this side, but okay. Everybody hear that? Loud and clear. <laughs> Loud and clear. <laughs> Go ahead. I'm off base, and I admit it. But the topic of the course was the will of God. The reason I'm over here is I don't think this was ever God. Interpreted all these social issues into it from being legal and the emotion of having a son and not having a son. Here because I don't think it was ever God's intention for whatever reason. Now I understand that of God is is not at all And you would say that that is the biblical that's the biblical mandate. Can, can everybody hear each other? Do we need this? Yes, we, yes. Do. Yes. we do need it? Yes. All right, so to help everybody out. Because we all need to respect the fact that other people need yeah. it. So all right. Go to the microphone first. So somebody was over here. Can I just talk about it? <laughs> no, you can't. No, you can't. Now I forget what my thought was. Oh, I totally agree with Dan. I mean, if, if we're talking the will of God and that was really, you know, that was the, the situation. The situation as you set it up to us, I believe, yeah, totally, the will of God and what the dilemma that the man would have, I'm, I, I just have to feel that if he really loved his wife and he really loved his son, obviously, you know, forgiveness and, and yeah, God probably did not will for this to happen or, or if he did, it was a test or whatever. But the way you posed it to us, biblically and legally, I think he would have the right to do, to do it, to divorce her. Okay, now... So if you, if you change that whole scenario and, you know, talk about forgiveness and the, and the will of God, because I, I totally agree with Dan on that. All right. The people that are in this section started us out by saying, we need a definition of adultery. How many of you, by show of hands, would say, if it's proven that this is adultery, that you would move to this side? If, if it was proven that it was adultery, you'd move to this side. Not what you would do, but what you would think and believe. I got two saying... Three, four, five. All right, so adult, the definition of adultery is pretty important. We need the microphone over here. Yep. All right, uh, two things. Uh, if the man were the one seduced, or whatever you want to call it, 
and he had to confess, would that change things? <coughs> the other one is, everywhere in the Bible, it's Lachayim, choose life. She chose life. That is the theme of the Old Testament and the New. And so we've got two things that are becoming very clear. One is, is that we need a proper definition. And again, that has to do with logic because we can't have equivocation. We can't have a fallacy of equivocation. So we need to come to that. And it seems like there's two kind of opposing laws that we're hanging on to. One is kind of love and forgiveness and one is adultery. Go ahead. And then we've got one over here too, Rich. Rich, I'm over here because I came in late. Uh, could you make a case for rape? Oh. Under this circumstance, it's. Uh, We're going to come back to that. That's a that's a great. Let's let's get this one in, and then and then I'm going to throw one more scenario out at you. And if you've just come in, if you're on this side of the room, if you think we have a biblical right to this side, you say no. In the middle, you don't know. I think the reason I'm over here is because. If I think about God's promise to me, and now I'm the woman, I'm the, I'm the woman in 1940, whatever it was, God has a promise to me and has given me a reason to follow him, and I have to place all my trust in him, which means that not necessarily is that guard the only one that can protect my son and my husband. So the guard said to me, I can guarantee it, but if I put my trust in that guard, then I'm taking my trust out of God because it could be that God has an answer differently than what that guard. But I've no, I don't even give God a chance to show me miraculously that if I keep my eyes on him, that he's going to protect us anyway. And so I'm removing the possibility for God to work in my life because I'm now putting my trust in the guard. And so to me, it's adultery and there is definitely a right for divorce. And Matthew 19 says, why then did Moses command that a man give his wife a, a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard, but it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for maritable, marital unfaithfulness and marries another woman commits adultery. So marital unfaithfulness was a reason for divorce. And that's New Testament. Okay, now let's all stand up again, and maybe we'll get some movement. Everybody stands up. Here's the, here's the third scenario that I'm going to give you. The Nazi guard saw none of the separation. He just encountered you, the, the, your, your uh, wife, as a person who was literally groveling because she was so upset had no will to live, basically, but came to her and said, sleep with me or I'll kill you. Sleep with me or I'll kill you. Do you have the biblical right to divorce her? Come here, say no on this side, and if you're still in the middle, stay where you are. Feel free to move here, okay? Pardon me? And she did. And she did, yes. Yes. Maybe there's something I can't see in this. But you're talking about biblical rights. Where did the, is there rights in the Bible? Do we have personal rights? I thought we had duties. Biblical rights is not a very biblical term. Go, no, go ahead and say that. Go, go ahead, explain what you mean. Uh, I don't know what you mean by biblical rights. I would like to have a definition of that as well as a definition of divorce, of uh, adultery. Of adultery? Well, you're, you're making, uh, if you're going to define your terms, let's define what biblical rights means. The biblical right would be to say that this is what we should do. It is the duty. Why, why do you have a problem with that when we change it from right to duty? And would that be a duty? A should? To 
I still need, what's, what's the difference between right and duty? I'm asking, I'm, I'm asking because there was such a strong reaction to that. I'm, I'm at, what made the change? That's, that's what I'm asking. Now, one of the things that we're, we're really getting at here, and this is part of what I think we really have a problem with in our society today, is that we don't define things. And everybody has their own definition of these words. And this is where we get into so much logical fallacy, is because it's equivocation. You mean one thing by what you say, and I mean another thing, and so therefore that's why I believe what I believe. And it, we've got to have some definition of, of these words and these concepts. Now, that's why I, on this third scenario, I was wanting to see there was more movement there than on the first two because I think it became a little clearer to some people's minds. Let me give you a fourth scenario, and we'll see if we can get it defined anymore. And I'm not trying to avoid a question. I think it's, it, it's healthy to, for us to hold this intention for a little bit. So let's stand up again. Here's the fourth scenario. Your wife comes to you, didn't see anything with the family, just you, just your wife, rather, and, and the wife is, has just literally given up anything. And this Nazi guard comes begins to slip her extra food, begins to help her deal with the prison system a little bit, and just becomes a friend. And now she says, my confession is, is that I slept with him. Of my own will, my own volition, there was no anything else, no threat, anything. I couldn't face another day if I didn't have the love and embrace of another human being. And I'm sorry, but that's the reality in the prison camp. Now, biblical right to divorce or not? Go ahead and move. <laughs> this side of the room is gaining people. Anybody that moved want to say why you changed? Go ahead. It's not fair, but, but she did make this choice of two bad choices. Okay, she made a choice. So the choice became, and would you say that the first few choices, options maybe were not choices? She didn't have a real choice? Theoretically, it was a choice, but the implications for other people were overwhelmingly one way. In this case, it was simply an emotional thing. Women are very emotional, and they would not like prison camps, but the <laughs> husband would have the biblical right because it was a choice that she made with no overriding factors to sleep with his prison guard who probably hadn't taken a bath in years. <laughs> <laughs> what troubled me somewhat is that uh, there's another law that's somewhat involved here, and that is thou shall not take a life, uh, the right to take a life. And if you want to argue that in uh, one of those scenarios, uh, you know, I'm going to kill your son, I'm going to kill your husband, I'm going to kill you, uh, she... Uh, is choosing life, and you, one might argue that she would, by not consenting, she's taking the life of someone. So that right, that sin, uh, is being put right up against adultery, and that might impact that right. It, it's troublesome to me that uh, you'd be taking a life 
and how that would impact on the right of a, a divorce. So it makes me a little uneasy sitting here under those scenarios with that uh, mm -hmm. thought. When I saw the first three as, as a knife held to her throat. She was being, she was rape. And the fourth one was more of a mental choice. And that's why you switched. Yeah. Anybody over here want to, we've got two over here. We'll start here. Well, right from the beginning I felt this guy has a great wife and he should embrace her. Surviving <laughs> marriage with him, surviving um, the concentration camp, so few survived. And this guard helped her survive and her son. So are you in the middle or are you still over here? I was, no, I think I'm over here. You're over here. Yeah, okay. I'm over here. All right, so what is adultery? Is it, are we talking about emotional adultery? Are we talking about people who are in this life together, whatever cost? All right, how many would say that the, that the first three were rape? How many would say the first three scenarios were rape? Most of us, but not all of us. For those that would say that you don't consider it as rape, why would you think it would not be? Anybody? Rape and consent go together, right? That, that those two things that, that you have to have both of those. There's no consent, it's forced. Oh, you mean no consent right. goes with rape. Right. Okay. All right, but there is consent here. There's an authority, there's a, there's a force, there's a strength, there is something that is being put upon a person that they're not going to normally willingly do. I, that's where I shake out on that. I really think that, that the first three scenarios very clearly are rape. Very clearly are rape. And in that situation, there is no biblical justification for divorce. Now, I just alienated everybody on this side because you were over here. Does anybody want to re respond to me? Terry, you just sent us to Deuteronomy where it says clearly, you must not send her to war. He could not be sent to war or have another duty laid on. That's, that's, 20, that's verse 5, I think you're on. What it says is that when she becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her and sends her out of his house. And that's repeated in the New Testament. Th th let's get a couple of the, the uh, verses on the table. He's reading from Deuteronomy 24, right? Yeah. Verses 1 to 4. Right. But the fifth verse is kind of cool, too, that yes, you just, <laughs> that your first year of marriage, you're supposed to take a year to cheer your wife and not, not do anything else. But <laughs> Take a holiday. Yeah. But uh, then we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5, I think it's verse 32 that you want to look at that. And Matthew chapter 19, the first seven verses. Malachi 2.18. Malachi 2.18. And that's one's very simple. It's where it says that God hates divorce. Very, very clear. God hates divorce. It's not a, not a teaching about divorce per se other than to say that God hates it. And then Matthew both chapter 5 and, verse, and chapter 19 gives Christ perspectives on those verses in Deuteronomy and Malachi. There's also 1 Corinthians chapter 7 that you would need to look at very clearly. And, and that has to do a lot with particularly uh, relationships that have a believer and a non-believer involved, a follower of Christ and a non-follower of Christ, and some other things that are going on there. There's also in, in the, those passages about a remarriage, and once a divorce has happened, are you able to be remarried? And so these are the scriptures that are the primary 
scriptures in this regard, speaking only to divorce. We need to kind of wrap this up, um, and we've got a couple of things we need to do, but there's a, there's a few things that I think become clear through this discussion. And as the, we go through the next couple of weeks, we'll do similar kinds of things, and we'll have, you're going to start to see some of these things repeated. One of them really is, how do we define what we define? And I think that after we get through and understand what rape is, what adultery is, what some of these specific terms mean, it begins to help shape our thinking. It helps us clarify so that we don't fall into logical fallacies of arguing. The second thing is, is that there is many, many times, most of our great ethical dilemmas are found when we have a very clear, here is adultery, very clear, here is love and forgiveness. They're both taught in the scriptures. Very, very much both taught in the scriptures. And if we are to be biblical people, if we are to be people of the book, following Christ, finding God's will for our lives, that's our foundation. And therefore, we've got to figure out what do we do when we have these conflicting arguments, when we have these conflicting theologies or viewpoints. Within the Presbyterian denomination, that is a lot of our problem today, is it not? How do we reconcile these love and forgiveness? And, and, and so as we go through the next couple weeks, and you have to understand, I normally teach this over the course of about 40 hours, not four. And so we're, you're not going to get a full thing. If we did, I'd have to give you a college degree and you'd have to pay the few thousand dollars to take the course. But um, we're going to try to help you begin to think these thoughts. Now, I believe uh, professors are called professors because they're supposed to profess what they believe. That's the, at least the origin of it. Origin of it. I believe that, that, that these first three cases are very clearly rape, and therefore I would not have a biblical right. I would not be duty-bound to divorce my wife. The last one falls into another category. But there's always the difference between what I have the right to do and what I should do. Is that helpful to your question that there's a right but there's a should too? Both of you were kind of... The basic question assumes that what the Bible, the Bible is, is, is a legal, legal document. document. If you'll notice all the attorneys were on this side. <laughs> okay. I don't see the Bible as a legal document. I don't understand what you mean by biblical rights. Uh-huh. And therefore, the question leads to Jesuit casuistry, which is what's happened with the kind of definitions that I had to emerge. It's inevitable. Okay. You started over here, right? But you moved to the middle. Well, but I had trouble with any movement because of the basic assumption of the question. Okay. How, how could we better frame it than right? How, how would you like to see it framed? Uh, you needed to find biblical rights before I can make a judgment. Okay, would, would, a, would a better term be justification, biblical justification? It's better, but it lacks substance. How about authorization? Authorization. How about the will of God? <laughs> what, what is, the, for this is the will of God concerning you, and Micah 6, 8, give us some ideas of the, the nature of authorization and justification. They give us some ideas. Basically, we're talking about here is how do you understand the Bible? Right. And what's the intention of the Bible in the scheme of salvation? Right. Well, not just in the scheme of salvation, but in the scheme of living for Christ. The whole picture. Right. And when you say biblical rights, you set up the scene in a way that I find not biblical. Okay. And I'm asking... How would you like to see it framed? Uh, it's a tough question. <laughs> <laughs> and you expect me to answer it. <laughs> well, uh, I, 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 if you're making the Bible 
uh, uh, more important than Christ by that statement, then I would have some difficulty with you. I don't think they can be separated. The written word and the living word are all the word of God. Well, the, the Catholic Church obviously has made something other than Scripture, sola Scripture. Yes. Okay. And uh, so the question comes, uh, when you say biblical rights, what are you saying about the Bible? Is it a legal document? Is it a book of rules and regulations that should be followed? I'm just kind of speaking as I'm thinking this out, but in a way, while we may not think of the Bible as a legal document, on some level our society does use the Bible to create legal documents regarding murder, regarding rape, that, that there are several laws that we have that I, I think at the root of it does come from the Bible. So I don't know whether the Bible itself is a legal document, but I think the Bible is used in the foundation of legal arguments and legal documents. We, we do have some of our legal people over here. Wh what would you, help us with this right, help us with Roger's questions a little bit. See, I think part of the problem is that um, some of us here, if we were told that this was the word, this was the law, and, and this was the end of Revelation, uh, we would think differently. We would probably be moving. Because I think most of us are coming to understand that God has revealed his nature in developmental ways. The, the Jews at the time of Christ had an entirely different perspective. Jesus brought the rights of women into the picture for the first time. And, and so... Are we to say that the law forever is to be, what, 640-some rules of, of Deuteronomy in the Old Testament? No. God has continued to reveal his nature. And I think most of us here would say we would respond differently in the context of the will of God, Dan. I, 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 don't th I think there's a significant difference. And... and uh, I'm not comfortable with these people who said the Bible says it, therefore that's the way we do it. The question was framed with Jewish individuals, Old Testament. So the New Testament doesn't factor in in answering those questions. New Testament, I'd have a totally different perspective on it. But Old Testament uh, was pretty legalistic. And uh, again, I, ignorance, uh, if there is an exception to a man's right to divorce his wife, if she lays with another man in that she was raped, uh, then I'm wrong legalistically. But he would have a right. Pardon me? Well, I, I'm not sure there's any exception, but I was looking at this totally through the Old Testament Jewish uh, that they wouldn't recognize the uh, the New Testament and all the forgiveness and all those things and how he Jesus preached about mm -hmm. the rights. So maybe that wasn't supposed to be the way we look at it. <laughs> well, I don't think that it, where I stand is I, I don't think we look at it as a strictly legal document, but I do think there's legalities in it. I think that there are things that are very clear that this is what we should do and what we shouldn't do, which is the basis of legality, what we should do or shouldn't do. But that's what we're trying to, we're, and I think as we go through the next few weeks, some of this will become clearer, but. I guess my whole thing that I feel about this is, I never have thought of the Bible as a rule book. I've thought of it as my study guide. I thought of it as a place that this happened all these years ago. I'm not living there, I'm living now, but through this, through this study of this, I can live my life today with the guide and the guidance that I get from it, not a set of rules that can, I, I visited Auschwitz. It was the most, I, I couldn't talk for days. Mm -hmm. After hearing your scenario, I couldn't even begin to make judgment on that scenario. 
And I guess I think of it as a study guide, not as a rule book. Okay, we've got a few minutes left, and I want to do something that I think will help us um, get at some of this. And I'm going to give you some, some homework uh, to do as we think through this together in the next few weeks. When, when people start to come, and uh, I'm not sure why you came to the class today. Uh, I don't see many people that are here today that are saying that they are in need of figuring out which university to attend. What's the will of God for me? What university should I attend? Or what career path am I in? Most of us here today have those things pretty well worked out. But we may have some things in our lives that are we're trying to figure out in different ways. So sometimes it's the call of, of God in our life. Sometimes the will of God is, is who do I vote for in the primary? How do I know the will of God? I'm not sure why you came, but I think that as you look at, at some of this, the, the, the first seven points here, and go through the next week, I, I would like you just maybe to reflect on some of these, and, and maybe we can even talk a little bit about them. But I think that we know God's will by these things. First of all, and primarily, we know God's will through his word. The second one, that his will for our lives is not going to contradict anything in his word. Anything that's not commanded, suggested, it is going to be in God's will. It's also not going to contradict logic and reason. It may contradict conventional wisdom, but it's not going to contradict the laws of logic. It's going to be consistent of a life of faith, and that key portion of Scripture in Romans 14, ending in that, that starting in verse 22, that whatever is not of faith is of sin. If you cannot absolutely be sure that what you're doing is biblical, then until you're sure, it's not of faith. It needs to be a faith. Sometimes God's will is known to us out of pain or out of obstacles. And God's will is known through following Christ and through a relationship with Christ. And I would like to maybe focus there the last few moments that we have on those last couple things because so often we want cookie-cutter questions and answers to those cookie-cutter questions. We want the well, just tell me what to do. That's not always the case. You know yourself. You can tell me and I'm going to rebel. And, and it has, knowing God's will is known through following Christ. When Jesus came to his disciples, he didn't say, I'm going to tell you what university to go to, what career path to take. I'm not going to tell you what you're supposed to do on this, that, or the other thing. He just said, come and follow me. Now that assumes, point seven, that it comes through relationship. That knowing the will of God comes through relationship. In John 15, he says, abide in me. That's assuming a relationship. And so we are gonna know God's will by knowing Christ, by being in relationship with him. Without the relationship, there would be no journey. And as nebulous as this might be, be to us and as difficult, we want simple cookie cutter answers. I really think that we need to embrace Christ through his word and that's how we're going to know ultimately the will of God in many of our situations. If you would please turn with me to to Acts chapter 16. And I'd like to leave us with a little devotional thought along this line. 
Now, we're finding that Paul uh, it has been joined by Timothy, and he's already been with Silas in the first verses there in chapter 16. And then they get into a place called Philippi, and they are having some trouble there and are thrown in prison. And you can see that starting in verse 16. And now they're in prison, and I'm going to start with verse 25. But at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were loosed. And the keeper of the prison, awaking from sleep and seeing the prison doors open, supposing the prisoners had fled, drew his sword and was about to kill himself. But Paul called with a loud voice saying, do yourself no harm for we are all here. And so he called out for a light, ran in, fell down trembling before Paul and Silas, and he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And so they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house, and he took them the same hour of the night, washed their stripes, meaning where they had been beaten. And immediately he and all of his family were baptized. And now when he brought them into his house, he set food before them, and he rejoiced, having believed in God with all of his household. And then the rest of the chapter that I'll leave for you to read is how the whole church there at Philippi was helped by this very time, and they were given a new freedom of worship. How do you master your midnight? It may be that one of the reasons some of you came to this class to take the time out of your schedule, your valuable time and energy to spend an hour with us today is because you're going through a midnight experience and you're trying to find your way through that midnight. It's dark. You can't see anything. You're in physical pain that's unbelievable. You're shackled. You're being falsely accused. I don't know what your midnight is. But how do you master it? How do you know the will of God in those times? I'd like to suggest to you that Paul and Silas's whole way of going about it had to do with praising God, singing, praying, maintaining their faith, even in the darkest of the midnight. And as a result of their faithfulness during the darkest of moments and times, God did a miracle. Think about it. Paul knows that he has been called by God to go and do certain things. And he was doing that. He was in Philippi. He was doing what God had told him to do. He was very clear on what he was supposed to be doing, and he was doing it. And now all of a sudden, because he was doing what he was supposed to be doing, he's imprisoned, he's persecuted, he's beaten. Some of you are in business and you're doing it ethically and you're taking a beating in certain ways. Some of you are being faithful in public arenas and you're being denied promotion or you may even be losing your job because of your faith. One of the things that's really interesting right now is what's going on with Tim Tebow and that he's being persecuted like crazy for what he's doing. If I was counseling him, I might counsel him to do it a little differently. But nonetheless, wherever you find yourself, if you haven't gone through a midnight experience yet, you just haven't lived long enough, And how we get through this, how we know the will of God is not to walk away from God when it's dark, but rather to pursue God even more so. How are you mastering your midnight? How am I mastering my midnight? Is it through praising God and praying, staying in fellowship with other believers? 
the truth of this particular story is that if we do that, good things will happen. God has something in the midnight if we're willing to master that with him. All right. Take a look at these that I've just given you. Contemplate them for the next week or so. And a second thing that I'm going to hand out to you just now is something that will be helpful for us as we begin to interpret Scripture. You need another hand there, don't you? And that we're going to need to learn as we go through this scenario that we are going to have to interpret Scripture and this issue that came today, which of these biblical mandates do we go with? There is a biblical mandate that says that yes, divorce can happen. There's also a biblical mandate to forgive and to, to work towards reconciliation and redemption. And so when they come in conflict, what do we do? And so this will be helpful for us as we go forward. If you have some of these concepts in the back of your mind, you can bring these back. We'll have other copies in the future too. I would really recommend that you bring scriptures and your, your Bible with you. And let me just kind of go over those, those passages again on divorce if you'd like to uh, go over them. Malachi 2.18. That might be 16, but 2.18 2, I believe. Deuteronomy 24. The first four verses. Matthew 5.32 and chapter 19, the first few verses. And then 1 Corinthians chapter 7 would all be helpful along those lines if you would like to read those and consider those. If you came in late and did not hear me say, I, I apologize, I, I don't want to be offensive as we talk about these uh, topics. I know there are those here that are, have been divorced and that was a hard discussion maybe for, for you. It's not meant to be offensive. We're trying to be helpful and trying to be loving. And we want you to feel free to come back next week, so don't be offended by that. And if there's anything that I have said that's offended anybody, let's, let's talk about that. I don't want you to leave and not be able to take the Lord's Supper because we're not in good relationships. Uh, Dave, will there be the Lord's Supper today? Okay. Okay. Now there you go. Any last comment from anyone? Let me just pray to close this. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yes. Around the virgin birth, he could have. And, and I don't think I said this. Forgive me if I did, and I just have forgotten. But I, I would not have divorced my wife in any of the four scenarios. Uh, just so there's no question. She left early. Yeah, yeah, she's gone. She's one of those. Yeah, she's a dear. <laughs> Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for this time. Thank you for this good discussion. We thank you for your word. Help us to think these thoughts so that we know more about what you want for us, so that we might know the, your will for our lives as individuals, as in our careers, in our relationships, in all that we do for you. We pray this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus, who is the Christ. Amen. Thank you, everybody.